Welcome to The Critic and Her Publix. I'm your host, Marva Emre. In this live interview series, I ask the best and most prominent critics working today to perform criticism on the spot, on an object they've never seen before. It's a glimpse into brilliant minds at work, performing their thinking, taking risks, and making spontaneous judgments, which are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. A friend of mine described Andrea Long Chu's approach to criticism as perfecting a rigorous negativity. We all know how deeply fun it can be to hate on something for long and intense periods of time. But as any good analyst or theorist of emotion might point out, there always exists a hard kernel of love and hate. It's an abiding love for the sheer act of thinking that I always sense in Andrea's work. She is this year's recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism and the book critic at New York Magazine. Her book, Females, an extended annotation of a lost play by Valerie Solanus, was published by Verso in 2019 and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Transgender Nonfiction. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, Art Forum, Book Forum, Boston Review, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Four Columns, Jewish Currents, and N Plus One, where you can find her two celebrated essays, China Brain and On Liking Women. I'm sure many of you have read her blockbuster reviews of books by Maggie Nelson, Otessa Moschweg, and most recently Zadie Smith, as well as her essays on The Phantom of the Opera, and my favorite, on the children's book The Velveteen Rabbit. I'm very happy to have her as our inaugural guest. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are very, very lucky to have you. So I thought we could start with me asking you to imagine that you are one of the 18 to 21-year-old students in this room tonight, or to imagine yourself as an 18 to 21-year-old, and to tell us a little bit about how you ended up here (laughs) in my hot seat (laughs) as the Pulitzer Prize winner in criticism for 2022? Wow, let's see. I, in college, actually was not, I was not an English major. Um, I liked writing, but I didn't think about it as writing writing. I was a theater studies major for almost all of my undergraduate career, so what I probably was doing was rehearsing or, or reading plays, and what happened is that I was reading plays I was frustrated with them, and so I was reading about plays. I was reading not so much criticism as theory, and then I was reading theory, theory, French philosophy, all that stuff, and that sort of, I realized I liked thinking about things more than I liked actually the doing of the theater, and so I ended up switching into literature, and um, that led to graduate school and a whole other series of disappointments. You describe yourself as a recovering academic. I am, I am a recovering academic. Um, you know, I was thinking, <laughs> my first experience of like actual criticism, not literary criticism, actually like, here's the thing, I will criticize it. <laughs> uh, the student paper, uh, I did not write for the student paper. I instead developed a reputation for very long comments on the student newspaper website 
There was a, um, that we had a token conservative in the opinion pages of, of our student paper. And so I made a point kind of of always waking up early the day his column would run and writing a rebuttal basically and posting it in and it became a thing where people would talk to me about it like it was a running thing, mm -hmm. like it was a little mm -hmm. series I was doing. But there was a, there was a production, it was like a student production of a show and there was a really positive review of it in the paper and I had hated the show. It was a bad production of Ragtime, and, um, which is a bad show to begin with. Um, so it probably wasn't their fault. So I, I wrote my own very negative review and left it in the comments section. In, in retrospect, an undeserved act of cruelty. And so, you know, similarly, went to grad school and was going to be a, you know, in this sort of nebulous world of is it literature, is it philosophy? I was going to maybe do, do some sort of gender studies thing. And I had written this piece, this academic piece, that had been published in like a grad student run journal at the editorial meeting of that journal. Uh, I met the person who'd read it in blind review who told me that they thought that it must have been Lauren Berlant. This for me at the time was extremely flattering, still is flattering. Um, I told Lauren and Lauren was like, our writing is totally different. Um, <laughs> Not different in themes, but that our style is different. That Lauren is slow and I'm fast, is what they said to me. But um, I met someone who was friends with an editor at N plus one, said we're maybe looking for a piece. So I wrote this thing, and I had read N plus one before, but it wasn't like a conscious decision. I just really had a bunch of thoughts. Um, and this was the piece that became This was Unliking Women. Yeah. Um, and and I wrote it in like a week, and what I now know is my first uh, hypomanic episode. And um, it's hypo because it lets you work. <laughs> if it's mania, it interferes. If it's hypo, it helps. Um, and, and that kind of just it kind of blew everything up. And for a period of time, I was like, oh, I'll be an academic and a writer. Mm. And then I realized that that was a bad idea because uh, I could just be a writer. And I didn't want to do that academic stuff. Because it often seemed to me that the stuff we were talking about in class was not the real stuff. Like that we would be having this whole discussion about whatever. Some piece of theory or whatever that we were all reading. And we kind of go around trading that, that kind of comment that you make in graduate student class about where you're bringing in your own interests and you're, you're trying to complicate things and you're citing and you're... And, at some point, in any given class, in any given meeting of any class, I would kind of be like, I think this is stupid. I think this thing we read is dumb. Like, or it's bad. Like, why aren't we talking about the fact that it's bad? <laughs> um, and so now I do that for a living. Right, okay, so a couple of things. One, what is the real stuff for you? That is, that is a slightly nebulous category for me. So I wonder if you could put as we might say in academia, if you could put a finer point on <laughs> what the real stuff is. Well, we could be on a panel at a conference, and you mm -hmm. could ask me that, and I would come up with a bullshit answer. Yeah, give me the real answer. And then we would go get a drink at the bar, yeah, and then yeah, we would yeah. have the real answer, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we would talk about, some of it is actually just like basic materialism, right? And some of it is like, well, I said this in that paper because I needed to finish the paper, because I was like on the plane, or, right? Like, Right. To say that like the act of writing doesn't take place outside of conditions of living, 
But another part of it, I think, is just actually trying to have some fidelity to the experience of liking or not liking mm. something. Um, I, I am a fan of knowledge, usually in the abstract. I like the idea that people have it, and sometimes I have it myself. But one of the great things about being a critic now is that I am sort of a professional dilettante. Mm. And I say this you know, somewhat tongue in cheek, right? So I, I now have the position at New York Magazine where I only have to write a couple pieces a year. They give me lots of time to do research on them. This is a very unusual arrangement at this point, right? Um, you know, most of the people working as critics are having to turn things out on a more regular basis. Or, but, you know, so I have the time to try and read everything that the writer has written before or, or to read secondary text, things that they mention and interviews or that come up in the book, whatever. And I think that enriches, I mean, I know it enriches the work. But if I was just doing that, I would not say that that's criticism properly. There still has to be a part of it where I say this is, this is good or this is bad. Because when I say of a piece of art, this is good, what I mean is implicitly, and the rest of you should think so too. In other words, not necessarily in a dictatorial way, but it's why anyone else should care. I, I do think that, in theory, we write to persuade, right? You don't necessarily believe me, I'm going to write something, I'm going to give you evidence, and I'm going to make it stylish, and then hopefully, maybe you will agree with me by the end of it. I kind of don't think that that is exactly what criticism is about. And it's not because I don't feel a desire to do that. I really do want to convince you if I'm talking to you. Um, but the analogy for me is um, uh, flirting. So. A lot of people think that when you flirt, you are trying to get the person to like you. This is wrong. You didn't know that this was the advice you were going to get today. Listen carefully. You, you, it's, it is a common, common misconception that when you flirt with someone, you're trying to get them to like you. You're not doing that. It's not going to happen. If they don't like you, they do not like you. It's not going to change. It's not a movie, right? What this means is that the only audience worth flirting towards, worth, worth flirting with, is the audience of people who already like you. Well, oh, this I is, completely this is, disagree this with this. Is, this I know. Is well, you disagree. You disagree. Incorrect. You disagree yes. with me. I disagree with you on flirtation and on persuasion. Well, I, I no, that's what I'm saying. I think I knew you would disagree with this because yeah. you're going to disagree with the analogy that I will make at the end of it. But. Um, so the only person worth flirting with is the person who's already attracted to me. This is great. So then what am I trying to do? The problem is that being the subject of, of attraction is hard. It's hard to be the person who is desiring someone else. Actually, it is an achievement to actually create a self in a given situation that can bear the experience of desire for another person, okay? So when I flirt, what I'm going to do with you is, I'm not trying to convince you to like me, I'm trying to give you permission to display towards me the attraction that you already have. <laughs> and you will appreciate this because it is hard, okay? So the analogy, which isn't exactly just an analogy. When I am writing, 
I am writing for the person who already agrees with me. The problem is that being the subject of a judgment is hard and frequently throws us into panic and anxiety and lashing out. It's really hard to have an opinion. That's why we say, well, it's just me, right? Oh, I guess it was just you know, the way that I, like, I guess I just didn't like it because of you know, per something personal that it, right? Sometimes you mean this, but usually you don't. You just don't want to have a fight, right? It's hard to be the subject of, a, of an aesthetic judgment. It's hard to be the subject of a judgment of taste. So what I'm going to do when I write to you is assume that you will agree and instead spend my time creating a space, a kind of richly imagined space in which you can assume the subjectivity necessary to bear the opinion that you already have. Well, but what about what about this wrinkle? And maybe this is just my maybe it's just my psychological makeup, let's say. But one is very rarely attracted to the person who is attracted to you. So why would you want to work for that person? Why would you want to do the work of creating that space for that person? Isn't it ultimately more challenging and thus more rewarding to enter into a situation of flirtation with the obstinate other? Isn't this what all romantic comedies are to a certain extent about, right? Entering into that space of flirtation with the obstinate other and then engaging in this act of persuasion by which the two of you are in some way remade through an act of criticism. I think we are actually potentially saying the same thing, but the thing that must be known about a romantic comedy is that we know mm -hmm. they're gonna get together, yeah. right? Yeah. We know yeah. that they're already attracted to each other from the moment they meet each other. That is the premise of the genre, right? So it is completely about them. When Harry Met Sally is about people who spend, like what, is it 10 years or something trying to figure out how to tell each other that they like each other? Right? And, try, and, and to tell themselves. So I think, I think there is a, a part of it which is sometimes that kind of obstinacy has to do with a calcification in the other that prevents them mm -hmm. from recognizing the thing that they already like. Now, this is completely a matter of judgment, right? Because I'm not, I'm hopefully not talking about being like, Come on, baby, you know you like it, right? right. No, there no, is no, obviously a bad there's obviously a bad version of it, right? But I think you believe that people have clearer senses of their own desires than I do. See, this is why I think it is fundamentally possible to persuade other people, because I think most people don't actually know what their judgments are. And I think most people exist in that state of ambivalence, ineffable, inchoate, unknown desires. And perhaps the word that I would add to authority is something manipulation adjacent or persuasion adjacent, charisma adjacent, that you can actually persuade people that you know their desires better than they do. I agree that people don't know. I agree that people don't know what they want, don't know what they think. This is, that's normal. But I think that's, but I guess that's my assumption. For me, the the goal is to, I want you to read the piece and feel like 
you are having the thought of the piece in the moment mm -hmm. and that it is you. And it doesn't actually matter whether empirically you agree with it mm -hmm. or not. It's that for the period of time that you are reading this, you do because you are having the thought. I'm giving it to you and you in reading it will have the thought. You know, it's interesting because on liking women is one of the few pieces in which you have written about liking something. <laughs> and I wonder if that description, rigorous negativity, how does that sit with you? And why, maybe more broadly, is it easier or more pleasurable to find a vocabulary of taking down, of disliking, than it is of liking or praising? Does that have something to do with you know, how we get people to assent to our dislikes versus how we get people to assent to our likes? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple things. One, unliking women is about liking women and disliking a number of specific women. Right. Um, if you have read the piece, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that already tells you something about yeah. liking and disliking, right? There is, this is not always the case, but generally speaking, liking is sort of vague and generic by nature, right? I love you. We all say it. The fact that we all say it sort of negates that any sort of specificity of it, right? Um, well, we don't say it to everybody. We don't say it to everybody. That's to true. People. But but when I love something, it's hard. Certainly, me, and I think this is true of a lot of other people. It's hard for me to identify the things that I like about something. When I dislike something, it's very clear to me what I dislike. So that that is part of it. Um, but it's also about um, unliking women. Is also that that uh, essay is about the continual disappointment of a particular kind of political optimism, right? And it ends on this note of, uh, I think the last line of Unliking Women is the other name for disappointment is love, right? And this is something that as a critic, you know, I, I wrote a piece about Andrew Lloyd Webber and, you know, saw on Twitter, which is not a real measure of anything. I just like to go and kind of see, because I get to see what, you know, some people responding. And saw some people saying, like, well, she just can't possibly like musical theater then. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> um, I, I got lunch the other day with Frank Rich, who for many years was the theater critic at The Times, who was known as the butcher of Broadway, who, you know, had a reputation for writing these negative reviews, and we were talking to each other about this, one uh, executioner to another. <laughs> that you, you, you always go in with optimism. Like, I saw with my friend Back to the Future of the Musical, <laughs> and of course I didn't have high expectations about what it would be, but I'm still excited when I'm in the theater. I will watch almost anything for one act which is really part of the problem. Some of these terrible shows just need lop off the second act, and it's totally fine. So it's like, it's the disappointment of that. Mm. So it's not coming from a place of bitterness, mm -hmm. I think, right? Bitterness is an attempt to not want anything in advance so as to never be disappointed. That's the John Simon approach if you want to have your theater critics. But I will say, the first really negative piece of criticism that I wrote was about Joey Soloway, who 
the creator of Transparent and had written this very stupid memoir and I had tweeted the whole memoir basically and was like, I should write this down. And now when I think about it, it's not that it was too personal because I'm not sure that I would sort of buy into that framework, but it was, I, I didn't have any optimism going into that mm -hmm. and that made it very different. I think there's, in, in criticism, there is cruelty and there is viciousness. Viciousness is the attack dog that hasn't eaten in a week and is drooling and barking and snarling. And cruelty is the person holding the leash. Mm. Right, so that piece, I think, was vicious. But the viciousness kind of, it's uh, proving that it is not coming from a place of authority because it leaps into the exacting of violence onto the object. Cruelty says, well, what are we going to do about this? You know, it's a, there's a restraint and a withholding of, I could be hurting you, but I won't, or I won't as much. Or, and that, that position, I have, I, I, I hope, kind of moved towards as I look at these takedowns that I have written. You know, what you say about authority makes me think about what you said a little bit earlier about how the purpose of criticism is judgment and how that judgment is never framed as something totally singular or personal. We do not say, it is beautiful to me. We say, it is beautiful. And those of you who are in my practical criticism class will recognize this as a very kind of Kantian precept. And in that case, the authority comes from the subject. It comes from the subject's feeling of pleasure or displeasure in sensing or encountering the object. But part of criticism is always to make that subjective feeling of pleasure or displeasure somehow available to others, to get them to assent to it by presenting the object to them through you, through your words. So how do you think about the authority of the critic in that scene of judgment? Well, okay, how much Kant should we do? No, not too much, because we have to transition to something right. okay. else. Okay. Okay. I give you five minutes. Okay, before. very quickly, very quickly, Kant says there are three kinds of liking. One, liking the agreeable, that's like when I have a snack. Two, liking <laughs> the beautiful, that's when something is beautiful. Three, liking the good, that's when I like the car because it goes fast, or when I like kindness because I think it's good in itself, okay? Three kinds of liking. Two of them have interest involved. So I want my snack to exist, I want my car to exist. Beauty has no interest involved. I don't care whether the thing exists. Um, so Kant says, I like it, but I don't have, it's not related to any sort of sensuous thing, and it's not related to any kind of determinate concept. So I can't say there's beauty in the world and here are its qualities. I just kind of like it, right? The reason I say this is that I don't actually think that the authority is coming purely from the fact of my liking it, because we know that we like lots of things for other reasons, right? It's not the fact that I like it. It's the fact that in my experience of liking it, I feel very strongly that everyone else should too. So the thing that actually characterizes the experience of the beautiful is not the pleasure, per se. It's the sudden sense of, the existence of other people's duty towards your own feeling and your duty as the person having the feeling. So 
Kant calls this subjective universality, right? On the one hand, it's just me. On the other hand, it applies to everyone else. I was reading yesterday A.O. Scott's book, Better Living Through Criticism. He is the now former film critic at the New York Times. Also current faculty member. <laughs> um, and he was, he was uh, quoting Kant. He was doing a little Kant thing, and he was saying that, well, subjective universality, we don't know if it exists, if beauty really exists like that, but maybe we can try and work towards it, and maybe that's what criticism is doing. He was, he's wrong about Kant, though, and the way that he's wrong is in assuming that the beauty is a thing. For Kant, we're still under five minutes here, folks. <laughs> For Kant, it's not about things in the world. It's about what can I rightly say is true? What can I rightly know? And what Kant says is he doesn't say that anything is necessarily beautiful. He doesn't say that beauty exists. All he says is that I sometimes get a particular feeling, and that feeling makes me believe that other people exist, and that it is possible for them to judge also, and that somehow their judgments should be in line with mine. So it's the sociability of beauty as an experience. That, I think, is where the trouble with authority, where authority comes from and where the trouble with it comes from, because we know it's extremely difficult to justify a judgment about the beautiful. And the problem is we can't help it. The authority, I think, is a matter of becoming responsible for the fact that you have made, essentially, a groundless judgment that now the rest of us have to at least care about. Yeah, some people would say that it's not just the subjective feeling of pleasure or displeasure, but it's my compulsion to speak about it. I have an encounter with an object, and I have to tell you about it, but I don't know exactly what to say. It's a public, yes. right? There is no beauty without a public. Yeah. That, to me, is very revolutionary in a way that, you know, the, the, the kind of legacy of Condra, that whole tradition, can sometimes end up in this place of like, well, I'm going to contemplate the beautiful, or I'm just going to like see the play of, of colors in the, on the canvas or tone in the music or whatever. And it is this very isolated and often very elite, right? Someone like Sontag is happy that most people don't get mm. modern art. That, that is a certain kind of tradition. But if you're kind of just attending to the way that it's laid out, it's about our being kind of thrust onto each other. And there's a reason that he says that it is kind of, there's an analogy with morality for Kant, right? When I, when I go to a movie with my sister and I say something kind of bad about it, or not even bad, if I just start to enumerate some of its qualities, she will get offended sometimes. Um, and she's right. I want to say, oh, come on, I'm just talking about the movie. But she's right. I'm saying, this is how you should feel about this movie. And she resents it. And we are, we are you know, delivered into each other's hands. We're going to take a quick break now and be back in a moment with the second half of The Critic and Her Publix. The Critic and Her Publix is sponsored by Vintage, publisher of Crying in H Mart the number one New York Times bestselling memoir by indie rock star Michelle Zahner of Japanese breakfast fame. In poignant memories and lyrical prose, Zahner reflects on her experience growing up Korean-American, losing her mother, and forging her own identity. New Yorker writer Rachel Syme says, 
Michelle Zahner has written a book you experience with all of your senses. Sentences you can taste, paragraphs that sound like music. Full of hope, humor, and honest emotion, Crying in H Mart is a book to cherish, share, and reread. Over one million readers have fallen in love. Now, it's your turn. Available now wherever books are sold. Well, I wonder if we could, if I could deliver us into each other's hands or deliver something into each other's hands. If you could all reach under your uh, chairs, there should be an envelope taped to the bottom. It's like a murder mystery. So, uh, um, I, I do often feel like there are two ways of conducting a class, particularly in graduate school, in literature, let's say. One way is to talk about how criticism ought to be performed, and another way is to actually perform criticism. So I have a little reading for you, and I was wondering if you could put that great glistening authoritative brain of yours to work on this particular object that is in the envelope. Interesting. Okay, shall I read it? I think that would be great, thank you. I want a dyke for president. I want a person with AIDS for president, and I want a fag for vice president, and I want someone with no health insurance, and I want someone who grew up in a place where the earth is so saturated with toxic waste that they didn't have a choice about getting leukemia. I want a president that had an abortion at 16, and I want a president who isn't the lesser of two evils, and I want a president who, d who lost their last lover to AIDS, who still sees in their eyes every time they lay down to rest, who held their lover in their arms and knew they were dying. I want a president with no air conditioning, a president who has stood online at the clinic, at the DMV, at the welfare office, and has been unemployed and laid off and sexually harassed and gay bashed and deported. I want someone who has spent the night in the tombs and had a cross burned on their lawn and survived rape. I want someone who has been in love and been hurt, who respects sex, who has made mistakes and learned from them, I want a black woman for president. I want someone with bad teeth and an attitude, someone who has eaten that nasty hospital food, someone who cross-dresses and has done drugs and been in therapy. I want someone who has committed civil disobedience. And I want to know why this isn't possible. I want to know why we started learning somewhere down the, down the line that a president is always a clown, always a John and never a hooker, always a boss and never a worker, always a liar, always a thief and never caught. Thank you. Theater studies. <laughs> so let us say you were given this as part of an assignment. We could imagine different assignments that it could belong to. But let's say it is on the history of the manifesto, which you have written about. How does your mind start to go to work on it? It's interesting because, of course, I recognize it. Yes. Do you want to identify it? Well, that's the thing is I don't actually, I have a vague sense of it, but I don't, I can't remember mm -hmm. where it comes from. And the reason I can't remember is that I feel like it is 
I feel like the first time I saw it was probably on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And now it's a, right, so it's a memed thing, mm -hmm. and it's a kind of like, anytime Trump did something bad kind of a thing. Like, it, it's, so it's, it's pre-digested for me, but it also, it still qualifies for the kind of classic practical criticism, not knowing who the author is, because I, one, don't know who the author is, and two, uh, I'm not supposed to know who the author is. It is meant to sound, I think, anonymous. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in a sense, right, it is about anonymity a little bit, mm -hmm. right? Um, Can you say more about that? In what way is this about anonymity? And maybe in what way is the manifesto form about anonymity more generally? Well, you know, I want someone, I want someone, I want someone, first of all. Right, the, the, there's a indefiniteness of the desire for a president. Mm -hmm. I mean, we read it and we think, okay, first of all, I don't actually know that this person wants all of these people for president, and you, can't, you also can't have multiple people for president. It's one of the key parts of being president, <laughs> is that there is only one of them. I, I, I say this jokingly, but also very seriously, right, because it is partly about the fact that there can only be one right, president, right? right? right. Um, I once, uh, just to quote myself, um, <laughs> I once wrote this uh, review of this horrible novel called Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld that sort of imagined what Hillary Clinton's life would have been like if she never- Married she, Bill? Well, if she'd, if she'd married him and then divorced him. Right. Um, and part of what I hated about that book was that the presidency sort of stands for a kind of class aspiration among a certain kind of college-educated woman, mm -hmm. um, which we call a girl boss. Um, and so the desire for Hillary to be president was actually less about who would be running the country and more of a like, because I should get a promotion and therefore Hillary should be president. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I said in this piece was, <laughs> And I think it had the phrase, and you can quote me on this in it. Um, the day the first woman becomes president, and you can quote me on this, will also be the day that every other woman in America doesn't. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, mm -hmm. a woman president will be exactly one woman being president, and no other women being president. And so part of, part of it here is obviously the impossibility of the demand, right? Which is, we could say, is part of a manifesto in general. But something else that you're bringing out when you mention the classed aspiration for the presidency is that there is a tension here between the desire, I want a president, and the specific types of people that are being listed here, even in their multiplicity. Right, of course. They are all sort of unfit for office mm -hmm. in various ways. They say it. I want to know, and I want to know why this isn't possible. It's the first time we have. Um, a different predicate on mm -hmm. I want, right? Mm -hmm. We have, I want suddenly to know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why this isn't possible. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not actually a question of whether it's empirically possible, right? Mm -hmm. Just like it's not a question of whether it's empirically possible for a woman to become president. This is a largely stupid question. So in what realm is that possibility or that impossibility operating there? I want to know why this isn't 
possible. Or to put it differently, where is the optimism and where is the disappointment falling here? Well, part of it, right. So that you have first, you have the layer of empirical impossibility. No one's going to vote for a dyke. No one's going to vote for um, someone who's had an abortion. No one's going to vote for it, right. There's a, a, the, that kind of practical empirical layer. Um, but there is another layer, which is that when I'm looking for the looking for a good one. When the person who has lost their last lover to AIDS, who still sees it in their eyes every time they lay down to rest, who held their lover in their arms and knew they were dying, when that person becomes president, they stop being the person who lost their lost their lover to AIDS. Who blah blah blah. They become president. The, president. the problem is that the president, the only person who can ever be president, is the president, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, to take us, to, to swerve to a slightly different kind of question, you mentioned that you recognize this because it has been remediated mm. for you by its appearance on Facebook. And that was probably in 2016 or thereabouts, even though I will give it away, this was written in 1993. And so it has become sort of repurposed for a different set of, let us say, more mainstream political right. initiatives or protests. That being said, even though it comes to you remediated, do you like it? What is your response to it? You're asking me to try and set aside the fact that it's been remediated? Yeah, or I'm asking you, well, it, it just struck me that that was the first thing that you said, and saying that comes with its own kind of judgment baked into it. That I saw this on Facebook as something that right, right. Uh, kind of that was being posted somewhat disingenuously, or maybe without full acknowledgement of what its origins were, or it was being co-opted for this, that, or whatever kind of political purpose. So, right, right. I mentioned that to give myself more time to think. <laughs> um, I am ambivalent about it. Mm -hmm. um, when I opened the envelope and saw it, I was like, oh. I thought, OK, I can understand why I've been asked to comment on it, I think. And I, I actually I had a moment of wondering what I could say about it, mm -hmm. um, because it is so, because um, it seems so overdetermined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do I like it? I think I do like it. But I say more about that liking or that inkling, that inkling of liking. Well, I have I have a weakness for the manifesto, mm -hmm. as as we have said, and that's partly because I have a weakness for uh, strongly worded and irresponsible sentences, mm -hmm. um, which is to say, on the level of style, mm -hmm. I like it, mm -hmm. right? Um, if I think about the political content and the way that, it, that the style kind of relates to the political content. I, there is something a little, this is also a risk with the manifesto, I think there's something a little facile mm -hmm. about it. It's like there's a, a kind of naiveness that is being performed in a way and that is cut into by the end, mm -hmm. right? I want to know why this isn't possible, is the moment when it's both acknowledging, acknowledging the impossibility of the demand, and also protecting itself from it a little bit. But it doesn't change the fact that there is still this like presidential imagery that is, that still I don't like. That part, I, that, it's like mm -hmm. I, like, I don't care about the president being a dyke, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. having an abortion, or having lost a lever to AIDS, or anything. Like, 
I care about the material effects of the policy, right? Like I care about what the president actually does. And so it's easy to see how something like this in a sort of post-Hillary morning era turns into, if only we had someone who was ennobled by their oppression as president, right? And that I find, that is noxious to me. Well, let me give you something else maybe to care about, and it, it comes from those last three sentences. And I want to know, I want to know why we started learning. All of a sudden, those are not questions of identity. Those are questions of, of knowledge. Mm -hmm. They're questions of epistemology. How did we learn this? How did we come to accept this as truth? Do you care more about questions of knowledge? Or do you think the manifesto is actually asking us to care perhaps more about questions of knowledge, knowing the impossibility of the possibilities that it is giving us? I think that that is a fair reading of it. You're not meant to actually, speaking of assenting, you're not actually meant to assent to the, um, I mean, these are, these are desires, so they're not statements of fact. You don't have to assent to them in that sense, but you're not expected to necessarily go along with it. It leaves something in its wake, mm. and that could be a desire to know more. I mean, right, so, This is about criticism, too, right? I mean, not exactly in the aesthetic sense, but, uh, but in a way that's not totally unrelated. You and I, before, um, before we got here, were talking about uh, sort of how we talk about the critic having authority, but criticism and authority, in a political sense, have a long kind of history of being correlated to each other. And partly there's the fact of it, right? There's the fact that this was published that has like certain implications, right? That you can say certain things without fear of a certain kind of reprisal from the state. But also it's about the presidency, right? Like I wanna understand why the president can't be a critic essentially, right? Mm -hmm. I wanna understand why the president, not just we have knowledge that's occluded about the way that we select, like about the hidden kind of requirements of the job. Because mm -hmm. in a sense, they're not hidden, right? We are taught certain things in civics classes and as elementary school children if we grew up in the United States. And yes, sometimes we continue to believe those things uncritically, we say. Um, but it's also that the president itself can't be a space of, in a sense, a space of, of like real thought, right? And this may not be the president's fault, right? It is a problem of authority. Because it's like, OK, say this person gets what they want, mm. right? One of these people becomes president, or they all become president. Like, there is a, it's, it's also dramatizing kind of the question of like, well, OK, what else would we do then, mm. right? Like, what other organization could we have that didn't involve having to vest someone with authority to sort out our differences for us when they become too difficult to, uh, to bear anymore. Mm -hmm. so, so I think it does, kind of, it, it does kind of tie itself into a knot that way. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing about it. No, that. I don't think so either. I think that's precisely what makes it interesting. Although I will think about your lines that the president can't be a critic when I launch my own <laughs> campaign for office. No, just kidding. Thank you so much, Andrea. For
You've been listening to The Critic and Her Publix with Andrea Long Chu. I'm Marva Emre, and I'd like to thank the staff at the Shapiro Center and the President's Office at Wesleyan University, the New York Review of Books, LitHub, Knopf, and Verso for providing us with permission to use this episode's surprise object, Zoe Leonard's I Want a Dyke for President, from Burn It Down, Feminist Manifestos for the Revolution. Thank you to our editor, Michelle Moses, and our composer, Danny Lencioni, for her score. Join us in two weeks for my conversation with Sophie Pinkham.